Welcome to a new episode of David's Politics Show. Today I've titled the show Europe in the World, Tertium Non Dato, borrowing a, a Latin phrase from the history of logic, which is sometimes known as, uh, the, the phrase comes from what is sometimes known as the law of the excluded middle, which simply states that any given proposition is either true or its negation is true. There is no third possibility. And I use it here provocatively and somewhat tongue-in-cheek to raise the question whether Europe, by which in this episode I will mean the EU, can survive at all, at least in its present configuration, in a world increasingly shaped by the struggle between the United States and China. And I take my cue here from a wonderfully written book on the transformation of Europe in the 20th century, written by a prominent American historian of Europe, and of Germany in particular, James Sheehan, uh, which is titled, Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? Question mark, the Transformation of Modern Europe. Now, the book argues that European society has, basically over the course of the 20th century, become profoundly uninterested and even, in a way, repelled, uh, morally repelled, by the, by the use of force. This was only possible thanks to the peace enforced by the Cold War in, in the second half of the 20th century, and by the U.S. security umbrella, which provided uh, the, the, the European states the ability uh, to essentially unburden themselves of the traditional uh, security concern of uh, dealing with, of taking measures to ensure one's, one's own survival. But nonetheless, it, it, these things provided the, the incubator, so to speak, within which something like what he calls a civilian state uh, emerge. In other words, a state which is essentially concerned with the welfare and prosperity of its citizens. Now, the EU, he argues, or rather argued, because this book was published in 2008-2009, the EU could, can become a civilian superstate, but not a superpower, unless, uh, unless and until it's in, not only its institutions in the sense of its formal um, political configuration, the commission, the parliament, and so on. But it's actually it's, it's it's societies, unless it's societies change and the values that those uh, societies hold. And he argued, I think, very pressingly that the challenges that would uh, put pressure on those European civilian states would come not from within, where war essentially has become unthinkable, but from without on the other side of what he calls a long and ill-defined frontier, unquote. As I said, the book was published in 2008-2009, and I think events in the last decade have shown how prescient historians, and notabene, not a so-called political scientist's uh, predictions can be. Because, after all, if we think about just the last decade's challenges to European stability and security, they have all come from the periphery. In Libya, in 2010-2011, where NATO intervened, uh, and, and the country has since then been essentially left in total chaos with rival factions um, fighting it out, supported mostly, again, by uh, countries on the periphery of Europe, Turkey and, and Russia above all. Uh, and of course, Libya then became essentially a springboard for people, uh, even from sub-Saharan Africa, streaming into Europe and essentially into Italy, 
and from Italy then northwards uh, to uh, to other countries. Although of course many in the, ended up staying in Italy for for one reason or, or another. So Libya was Libya and really all of Northern Africa or most of Northern Africa, uh, at least from the Tunisian coast uh, to Egypt for a while was fundamentally destabilized by the beginnings of what were, was later called the Arab Spring. And most dramatically of all, uh, in Syria, Europe uh, uh, essentially looked on helplessly as Assad first bombed his own country into uh, to rubble and then even used chemical weapons uh, on his own people. I mean, this bears repeating that Assad gassed women and children and Europe did nothing, nothing to stop it. The French were willing to uh, join with the Americans in 2013 uh, when Obama first threatened uh, a military response. But then, of course, he chickened out and nothing happened. And Europe on its own, again, this is the point, Europe on its own did absolutely nothing. And Assad got the message and uh, continued uh, to to do the things that he did. And then, of course, from Syria, uh, millions streamed into Europe via Turkey, destabilizing uh, European, uh, European politics for a number of years. Another example in Ukraine, where in 2014, Russia simply conquered uh, and annexed, and then later annexed a piece of Ukrainian territory, the Crimea. In a classic example of what was supposedly unacceptable for Europe, in other words, the use of force to change uh, territorial boundaries themselves. I mean, Russia simply swallowed up a piece of Ukraine, which is supposedly a sovereign state. And Europe, of course, put sanctions on Russia, but did nothing to actually make Russia's life difficult militarily. And on the boundaries of that conflict, uh, in, in, in eastern Ukraine, that is what that is what mattered. But if we rewind the clock just a little bit further, a couple of decades back, Europe was essentially powerless even back then, without American support, uh, already in the first Gulf War, uh, where the Americans did most of the planning and fighting, although the French and, and the British did contribute some forces, uh, Saddam would probably not have been uh, kicked out of uh, Kuwait. And Later, in a couple of years later, in Yugoslavia, Europe did nothing, next to nothing, to force the Serbs to stop their genocide against the Bosnian Muslims. And it was again the Americans under the cover of NATO, but ultimately it was the Americans, who ultimately put an end to the atrocities that were happening, and this also bears repeating, just a couple of hours flight from Paris, Berlin, and Rome. And especially if you think about Berlin, uh, which likes to talk about uh, you know, never again, and its special responsibility to prevent genocide and so on and so forth. Just a couple of hours flight uh, from Berlin, Muslim men and boys were being taken to forests and shot. In a way really not dissimilar from the way in which uh, the Wehrmacht and the SS uh, shot people in, on the Eastern Front in the early stages. Uh, of the Holocaust. Now, of course, you cannot co compare the, the extent of those events, but the fact that it happened on the European continent again, and it was not prevented except 
when the Americans coerce the Serbs and the, and the Bosnian Serbs to stop. That, that is the point. In other words, the EU has been singularly incapable of shaping its periphery, of providing stability to it, of, to use the language of the Roman Empire, of pacifying its frontiers. Instead, the EU has looked inwards, engaging in a lot of navel-gazing about the single market and generally contenting itself with being and becoming ever more a trade power, essentially a giant trade block and little more. Now, this was fine and well at the height of the so-called Pax Americana in the 90s, the 2000s, etc., when the US was able and willing to play the world's policeman and sort out Europe's problems for it. But can this sort of inward-looking provincial an utterly feckless policy, survive in a world in which the U.S. feels threatened by a near peer, and which is no longer that interested in solving every little problem that Europe has. But first, before we get to that question, we can ask ourselves, why has the, why has the EU been so spectacularly incapable, and even in a way unwilling, to act on its, on its periphery, to shape its periphery? I think it has a lot to do with what Sheehan, in this book, masterfully describes as the transformation of Europe from a collection of highly militarized, and indeed in many ways bellicose societies, to a collection of states essentially interested in, in trade, in economic growth, in welfare, in prosperity. The title of the book, Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? Question mark, says it all. War and the profession of arms associated with it have become one aspect of society and not even a very important one. Soldiers, as he puts it, have become essentially heavily armed police officers, no more than that. The profession of arms is no longer an incubator of patriotism as it, was, as it once was, especially uh, before the First World War and even, and even, and even afterwards, uh, up to, of course, the, the end of the Second World War. But rather, the profession of arms has simply become a job like any other. And hence, European societies have not been willing to forego the benefits of increased investment in the welfare state and more generally in prosperity at home in order to pay for the kind of armies that would be required to intervene successfully on the frontiers of Europe, especially in our day and age when uh, armies are necessarily technologically very sophisticated and therefore armaments are extremely expensive. Now, the most spectacular, and to my mind, the most shameful case in point uh, in, in this context is Germany, which, is, as I said earlier, has long lauded itself for its supposedly high-minded foreign policy, uh, a special responsibility, never again, and all that. But in practice, it has done next to nothing to prevent genocides, to nip them in the butt, or to, uh, or to stop them once they have begun. In Yugoslavia, it actually accelerated the fragmentation of that country by recognizing the secession of Slovenia and, and Croatia. And as I mentioned, in Syria, as with the refugees coming via Libya, German policy has essentially been, well, let them die in their droves there, but if they're lucky enough to get on a rickety boat, and even luckier to make it to European shores, then so be it, we'll force the rest of Europe to take them in. Now, this kind of gimmick can be pulled off depending on the scale, once, maybe twice. But it cannot be repeated on a regular basis. It is not the foundation for a, foreign, for a lasting foreign policy. Which raises the uncomfortable but inevitable question. What will happen when, when Syria's, plural, 
start to happen more and more frequently, start to happen again and again. The most extraordinary symptom, I think, of the blindness and historical arrogance of the EU is its utterly benighted view that it is somehow something terribly new in European history. That a peace project like it has never before been seen on the continent. Now, it is true, as Sheehan skillfully shows, that the civilian state is something new. But the condition of possibility for such a state to emerge was the security guarantee provided by Washington. The project of a union of European peoples, however, is not new at all. There was just such a thing once, and it was called the Habsburg Empire. It too was a multinational entity, containing and pacifying within it many different peoples and languages. It had a single point of reference in the monarch and the Habsburg dynasty, and it survived four years of the most intense, debilitating and utterly crushing combat in the First World War. And there is another, perhaps even more apt analogy, and it is available to us in our present, and that is Switzerland. Far from representing something archaic, ultimately idiosyncratic and therefore irrelevant, Switzerland today may represent a possible future for the EU. After all, the EU today is a bit like the loose confederation of cantons that was Switzerland before 1848. We now look back on that age of cantonal sovereignty as quaint and archaic. Of course we say they had to unite, how else could they have survived? Well, one day, likely many centuries from now, People then alive will look back at our age, perhaps, and learn in history textbooks that there, was, there were once independent countries of France, Germany, Italy, and so on. How cute. But that too, then, the creation of just such a European identity, would necessarily be a national, if not a nationalist, project. The EU, however, thinks that the, the at least the, 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 the bien-pensant elite in the EU, thinks that the word itself, national if not nationalist, is somehow a dirty word associated with the right on the political spectrum. Well, how then can it hope to create allegiance to something like a United States of Europe? For this, at least, the Europe, United States of Europe would be a bold objective, something truly transformational. And yet, even today, so-called pro-Europeans do not advocate this are not arguing and fighting for it. Instead, all we hear is a little more leeway on the fiscal rules in the Eurozone, a little more solidarity in refugees, maybe some Eurozone-wide deposit insurance. That, however, is essentially the limit even of the pro-European's ambitions. But what will the EU do when it finds that soldiers are still needed in this world? That history is not ended in a kind of commercial utopia? that if it wants to actually impose its interests and values on its borderlands, it will need more than two dysfunctional tanks and half a submarine that can't even leave port. And what will it do when Washington turns its gaze to China? And when China turns its hungry, revanchist and vengeful gaze on Europe, which, let's not forget, only a hundred years ago forced the Chinese to submit to its will. Europe may have forgotten that. But the Chinese sure as hell have not. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more such episodes. 
Until next time, bye-bye.